Welcome to Bandhan's World of Imagination. Today I'm very excited as we have our guest from all the way from Pennsylvania, United States. Welcome, Mr. Jason Creighton. Hey, thanks. Um, thanks for having me on the show. Um, I would say the same thing uh, to you all the way over in India. Um, <laughs> thanks, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining, Jason. Since when are you got into this wildlife conservation, and what excited you to make start making this podcast? Yeah, so um, hunting has is a is a pretty big culture uh, has a pretty big culture in the United States, and um, I grew up in a hunting family, and that's sort of how I started interacting with the outdoors. Um, it quickly evolved uh, over the years into more than just wanting to hunt and wanting to give back to all forms of wildlife, not just the animals that I hunt. So uh, I started joining some conservation organizations. Um, I'm up to 12 or 13 now that I'm members of and decided that while I love all of them, they're not, um, none of them are exactly what I'm passionate about. So I've decided to start my own nonprofit that focuses on mitigating the impacts of urbanization in the United States. And this, uh, the podcast that I started, Conservation Unfiltered, is an outreach tool uh, to talk about issues in conservation uh, and to try to educate the public, whoever wants to listen, uh, about you know those issues that are cropping up what seems like every single day. Right. So, like, are they focused on hunting and or are you, like, uh, collaborating with other NGOs who are working with the wildlife conservation? So, um, there is... It's not a focus on hunting, um, but we do talk about hunting uh, because hunting, according to the North American model of wildlife conservation, hunting is a tool that we use to manage certain species. Um, And everything, every decision that we make uh, is based in that model of of wildlife conservation. So we do talk about hunting. um, We do encourage hunting, but at the same time, um, it's really focusing on what we can do to mitigate, you know, the ever-expanding uh, population here in America and the space that we need. Uh, Americans need a, a ton of space to live more than any other nation. So um, we're losing a lot of wild land. So everything is is focused on that. Um, we haven't yet partnered officially with any NGOs, but um, we do uh, share some listeners and, and some members and um, work together a little bit um, to try to spread each other's messages. Great. So what all kind of animals you have been uh, like studied or talked about? Oh, man, um, I could probably <laughs> uh, list the animals we haven't talked about for quicker than the ones we have. But um, <laughs> you know, white-tailed deer is a very common species in North America. So we talk about that a lot, um, along with uh, wild turkey, black bears, elk, mule deer as well, um, pheasants, uh, which is actually a bird that's native to China, um, to the Asian continent, but has been naturalized here in the United States. Um, and then, you know, we also, anytime that you talk about doing conservation work, 
for a game species, there's the fringe benefit of also having a positive impact on non-game species like wood thrush or salamanders. Um, pollinators are real big now. So we've talked a lot about yeah. pollinators as well. So we, we really run the gamut of a whole bunch of different animals that we talk about. And basically, especially on the podcast, anything that sort of strikes my fancy um, that I find interesting, we're going to talk about that. So talking about the pollinators, so have you dealt with Asian mud hornets? That has been a recent big problem in the United States. Yeah. So like everything else, the media likes to take things and blow them way out of proportion because when you call something a murder hornet, uh, that gets people riled up pretty quick. Um, It's not a huge problem in the United States yet. Uh, It is a concern. Um, It's something that uh, state agencies and federal agencies are looking into and they're actively trying to find nests and, and eradicate them. Um, all of the murder hornets that uh, have come into the United States have been on the West Coast, specifically the um, northwestern coast. So Washington, the state of Washington, state of Oregon. Um, I think there may have been one found in British Columbia, Canada. All of those areas are thousands of miles away from where I live um, on the other end of the continent. So. I have never seen one with my own eyes. I hope I never do. I hope they eradicate <laughs> them and they don't make it all the way over here. If they do, we're going to have some some real big issues uh, with you know with wildlife, with food supply, because we need you know bees and pollinators to do the good work um, right. of producing plants. So, uh, like, since uh, you are into game hunting for uh, I think around nineteen years, so uh, uh, what brought you? Is it like a family uh, thing that? brought you in this uh, field? Yeah, I am the typical uh, American hunter. So I am, I'm 35 now. I've been hunting, uh, this is my 23rd year. Uh, I was allowed to start hunting when I was 12. Uh, My father hunted, my grandfather hunted, my uh, uncle hunted. Um, You know, I distinctly remember them bringing uh, white-tailed deer home during hunting season after they were successful and just being enthralled with the fact that you could do this and was really itching to go hunting whenever I was 12. Um, when, when you look at what the typical, you know, you know, American hunter, they're middle-aged, they're white, they're male. They come from a semi-rural setting and uh, they come from a hunting family. And that is, that's me to a T. Um, so I'm the typical American hunter, um, but we're getting, there are less and less people especially percentage-wise to the U.S. population that are hunting now compared to okay. 20, 30, 40 years ago. And um, so I've personally just made a mission to try to introduce more people to hunting um, that traditionally would not be hunting. So um, I think I'm up to four or five now, which is um, makes, you, makes me feel good that I'm passing on my knowledge and my passion to someone else. So what is the reason behind the decreasing uh, percentage of the hunters? everyone's so busy. Um, you know, there's kids that are grown up in hunting families and they just have so many activities to do between sports and school. And, um, you know, hunting can be an uncomfortable, uh, activity to do as well. You know, you're sitting outside in the weather. Uh, if it's raining, you're getting wet. If it's snowing, you're cold. Um, there's a lot of people, you know, we, 
as a human race, we've worked to make ourselves as comfortable as possible. And, um, you know, so why would anyone choose to willingly go out and be uncomfortable? Uh, so there's just less people making the time to go out to hunt. Um, I will say that there seems lately to be an influx of people interested in hunting and starting uh, that have never hunted before. Uh, we we call them adult onset hunters. Um, and most of these people tend to come to hunting because they're interested in being in sourcing their own food. Um, they're, uh, they either have issues with the sort of industrial food complex and, you know, these big factory farmed meats. Um, they want to try to source their food locally. And hunting is a, a great way to be a part of everything that, you know, it, every step of the way for your food. I mean, literally you were doing every step. So um, we are getting some more people just because of that. Right. So one question I had was, since you already mentioned the North American mo model of wildlife conservation, so that you are connecting hunting with it. And since you support hunting, so I would like my uh, audience to get this perspective that uh, what is the good sides of the hunting, which uh, fits in the model? <laughs> like the uh, apart from hunting? the... So, um, North American model of wildlife conservation, uh, runs on seven principles. Um, there, there's all kinds of, there's all kinds of real good stuff on there. You know, the wildlife is owned by the state, not by the landowner. You're not allowed to sell any of the meat or anything like that from dead wildlife, uh, that you would hunt. Um, it's a public process. Anytime there are new laws or regulations made it, all that stuff, um, in there, you, you also have to utilize, in good faith, every part of that animal that you can utilize. Uh, so it's not just shoot an animal, take the head, for example, as a trophy and leave the rest of the body. Um, that is illegal. Um, but really the biggest uh, pillar of the model is scientific management. All the decisions on wildlife are supposed to be made based in science. And hunting is a tool used for wildlife scientists to manage populations. Uh, the white-tailed deer, uh, you know, in the early 1900s, we were down uh, to, in the entire continent, to like 35,000 white-tailed deer. It was really, really bad. And then through proper management of that species, we brought them back to well over 7 million uh, in just 100 years, which is great. The problem is with our spread of, of human activities and um, these giant housing plans and less forests and less farms, uh, it ends up being too many deer for for the land to really support. So what you end up having is, you know, deer that are uh, underweight, uh, deer that die of starvation. Uh, you have a whole, you have an increase of deer and human conflicts, you know, whether that's hitting one with your car or eating your shrubs that you planted in front of your house. Uh, so we use hunting as a way to keep the, the herd at a manageable level so that not only is it beneficial to humans, but it's also beneficial to the rest of the herd so that they can thrive and, and still be healthy. So is it like there is a kind of a disproportionate between the predator and the uh, prey? Like there uh, aren't there natural predators for deers? Yeah, there are a lot of natural predators of deer, um, but we spent uh, at post-European settlement of North America, we spent uh, the next couple hundred years uh, trying to eliminate the competition uh, there was a lot of predator hunting f just for the sake of getting the competition off the landscape. So um, mountain lions are coming back, but, uh, you know, through 
the management we're doing, they're coming back. But um, mountain lion populations went down, black bear populations went down, grizzly bear and brown bear, um, coyote populations went down. Those are all natural predators of uh, of deer. Uh, here in you know my state of Pennsylvania, uh, we had the Nittany lion, uh, which is uh, a sub sort of a subspecies of a mountain lion, and um, we no longer have one now. There's not a single one in the state. Um, we do have coyotes, but it's still, you know, coyotes and we do have black bears, but really the, the most efficient predator for white-tailed deer would be that mountain lion that we don't have. So, yeah, they're, the hunting um, is sort of in place of proper predator management. As we find areas where, for example, mountain lions are, you know, they're coming back and they're a pretty good number of them. Um, we still need hunting in that area because as you increase the number of predators, you also increase the number of human and, for example, mountain lion conflict. And, you know, people want the mountain lions out there. They don't want them climbing a tree in their backyard or eating their dog either. So, you know, it, Hunting is the way to manage all populations of game species to try to do what's best both for the wildlife and for, you know, society and, and sort of socially. So what is the mindset of the people around you and uh, in the general population uh, around about wildlife conservation? So we have an organization here in, in the United States, um, the National Shooting Sports Foundation, and every 10 years or so, they uh, release a study on shooting sports and, and hunting and people's attitudes towards them. Um, the one that was just released, uh, I believe in 2019, what, uh, that was the highest uh, percentage of the U.S. population of non-hunters that approve of hunting if you're hunting for food. If we, you know, if I tell you that, if you ask me why I hunt and I say food, um, right. over 90% of the people are going to say, yeah, that's good. You can hunt. Um, now, when we start getting into um, reasons for hunting, like predator control or uh, for trophy, what people call trophy hunting, um, that that approval goes down. Uh, where I am in the state I'm in, you know, Pennsylvania is every year either the number two or number three state for hunting license sales. So in Pennsylvania, it's pretty well accepted. You start going into more more urban environments um, or more urban states with larger urban centers, it gets a little less approval. But it's still at, at you know right now we have the the best approval for hunters than we've ever had before, which I, you know makes me happy. I, I see the benefits of hunting, and hopefully, you know, other people, even if they choose not to hunt, um, see that it, it does have a, a benefit to the landscape so in the long run do you see it going towards a uh, more like a uh, game hunting uh, like sport kind of a sport that it was back uh, like a few uh, decades back or do you like it in a controlled way to keep it more scientific and take the nature along with i i don't see hunting as ever fully going away in the united states um i also if you look at the percentages of the population, I don't see hunting ever going back up to where it was in the 1950s. Um, in the 1950s and 60s was when we had the highest percentage of our population in the United States as hunters, um, basically because of uh, soldiers coming back from World War II. They learned how to shoot. They liked the, yeah. they lived in the outdoors for, for years. And, you know, at, 
on a war front and they decided that was an activity they wanted to do uh, percentage wise. Our population is increasing just like every other country's population is increasing. Um, I don't see the percentage ever getting back to that point. I'm hoping that at least the just raw numbers of hunters gets back. It's hard to say. Um, the pandemic had a positive impact. More people uh, started hunting or for the first time or started hunting again, maybe after taking a, a year, a couple year break because they didn't have any other options, right? There's nothing else yeah. they could do. Um, they couldn't go to restaurants. They couldn't go to movie theaters. Um, they were working from home. They just wanted to get out of their house. I don't, I, eventually uh, we have to get out of this pandemic and things have to open up. And when that happens, I see people's time getting redirected towards those other activities that are much more comfortable. <laughs> so I don't, I don't see, yeah, I, I, I see an increase in the total number of people, but it's never going to be a measurable impact, you know, population percentage wise. That being said, there's no, there's not enough animals. There's not enough land for everyone in the United States to hunt. It, it's, it would not, it would not be good for the animals. Um, so we don't need everyone to hunt. What, what we need for the good of, of the animals is everyone to be okay with proper hunting done, you know, through rules and regulations done legally, um, done the proper way for the benefit of, of the larger scope of that species. And if we have that, then a smaller percentage of hunters can do what they want to do, what they like to do, and have and you know perform that positive impact. Right. So, uh, how have you seen the forest area evolve? Like, how much has it been increased, decreased, or stayed almost the same? Oh man, <laughs> um, it has decreased tremendously um, in the United States and really around the world. Um, um, like, as I mentioned earlier, people in the United States, we like a lot of space to live. Um, we have the highest square foot like personal area <laughs> per person in the entire world. Um, so we need a lot of space. Um, just locally um, where I live, uh, a lot of sort of smaller farms when i say smaller farms anywhere from a hundred to a thousand acres that have traditionally been farms for a couple hundred years the families are selling them um, because the kids don't want to take the farms over because it's a lot of hard work and there's not a lot of good money there in farming and the people that are buying them are basically corporations that turn them into housing plans that turn them into these beautiful houses for people to live in which is great for people but it's very detrimental to animals. Um, that's just farmland. Uh, when you start talking about forest land, um, we have had a mismanagement of our forestry practices in the United States for the last 120 years. Um, we have been scared of fires because we had terrible fires in the early 1900s. So we have mismanaged and once we decided to go to more of a preservationist attitude, that's now bringing forest fires back. Uh, a, a lot of other ecological issues as well. And that that caused us to be scared, right? Um, that was an extreme uh, forest management practice, and that scared us. So we moved all the way to the other end of the extreme and became preservationists and said, we're not touching 
this land, these trees. And when you do that, that's not good management for wildlife either. It's also not good management for wildfires, as we're seeing an increase in wildfires, some due to climate change, but then also through mismanagement of the forest. So the forests that we do have need to be sustainably used. Um, you know, those lands that we have, the, there are resources on there that can be used in a sustainable manner. We just have to make sure that we're, we're doing that. Not only will humans benefit from those natural resources, but then the wildlife also benefit from sort of restarting parts of the forest in, again, a sustainable way. Sustainable is always the key when it comes to using anything on the landscape. Right. Like, yeah, that's the key. So speaking about sustainability and uh, since we are talking about forests, so what are your views on, since uh, it has been recently published uh, by various scientific uh, papers that the uh, Amazon rainforest is now a net emitter of carbon dioxide rather than the absorption. So where do you think this is going to lead? Go in the wrong direction. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, uh, we know that um, forests can sequester carbon. Forests can be used for the benefit of, in a beneficial way, to reduce the impacts of human-made climate change. Um, Obviously, you know, the world's largest rainforest, you know, can be an asset to us. Um, And they've, you know, cut down a bunch of land there. Um, Most of it is now being turned into agricultural use. So not only is it not that you know, each acre that they cut down is it now not um, sequestering carbon, but it's now going to emit carbon either through, you know, emissions from tractors or um, cattle production, uh, things of that nature. So, you know, it when you have 40 years of deforestation um, and non-sustainable use of a natural resource, it's going to come with consequences. And we're seeing those consequences now. There is a little bit of a silver lining, and that's that while the Amazon rainforest is the world's largest rainforest, mm-hmm. tropical rainforest, it's not the only rainforest we have. Um, right. We have, you know, a temporal rainforest over here in Canada and the United States on the, the coast of Alaska and British Columbia that has been sustainably used for years and can sequester a lot of carbon. Uh, so we still have that, right? So that right. that's that's good. Um, and some protections have been put in place to make sure that use continues to stay sustainable. Um, we're also, the United States is also uh, working to pass a new um, act. Uh, we call them acts over here in our government. Um, you know, everyone thinks about trees for sequestering carbon, but natural grasses and prairie land also sequesters a ton of carbon. And that's what the middle of the United States was for, you know, thousands of years uh, until we started farming it, uh, which we did irresponsibly that caused the Great Dust Bowl in the the 1930s. And we now have this act to try to reestablish this. this, It's it's called the Grasslands Act, National Grasslands Act, to try to increase the amount of prairie that's on the landscape. Um, That's going to be good for wildlife. That's going to be good for the ecology in the middle of America. And then that's also going to be good for uh, as being able to use another tool to fight climate change. So we're, we're trying to do good things. We might be going a little bit too slow, 
but we're trying to do good things to try to reverse as much of the impact of of climate change that we can so are there like are the state uh, policies and federal policies working uh, together hand in hand or are there sometimes conflict happens and uh, there's always conflict right um and our our politicians are people just like everyone else so um you know they like money just like everyone else so you have a lot of corporations a lot of um people that have a specific need um in mind that will donate money to politicians so sometimes you know i'm not going to say that that I'm, I can't say that the that the politicians are crooked in any way, but they may lean a little more towards a non-sustainable mm-hmm. policy um, because that's you know, that's where their paycheck comes from, and it's hard to it's hard to combat that as a regular person, as someone that do- doesn't have millions or billions of dollars in the bank. Um, but more people are becoming aware of the need for sustainability, which means more people are voicing their opinion whenever these policies come up. So um, oftentimes we find that even if like my personal representative doesn't vote the way I wanted him to, he was just one in a small bucket of no votes for a positive conservation bill. Um, so the bill will still get passed. Um, state agencies and the federal government do work hand in hand. Most of the time, there is little conflict there because they have the same general goals. Uh, it really comes down to just, you know, defining what sustainable use is on the landscape. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, like, uh, what are your future plans uh, regarding the podcast? Or So, before that, I would like to ask, so what is your full-time job? Or are you a wildlife conservationist or full-time podcaster? Oh man, I wish. Um, <laughs> that would be great to be full-time conservation, full-time podcast. Um, now I am a high school teacher. Um, I teach culinary classes for a local high school here. And um, it's actually where I am today in my room, um, which I love. I absolutely love this job, um, but I'm getting tired of being inside for you know 190 days a year. I would like to be outside doing uh, what I want to do. Um, more often um goals for moving everything forward man uh the podcast is going to be simple i'm going to keep talking about conservation i'm going to going to keep having experts on to talk to basically inform me of these conservation issues and then you know by recording it other people can hear it um spread the the good word of conservation of the conservation gospel to everyone to try to educate the public um, for the nonprofit, you know, we're in the process of, of filing right now. We haven't gotten full approval yet. Um, once we get full approval, uh, the, the we have two main goals for the nonprofit. One is an educational component, uh, which I'm a teacher, so that makes sense. Uh, we we're in the process of building curriculums about conservation to donate to teachers that want to teach it in their classroom to their students. And then the other component is to actively purchase land so that developers can't develop it. So we can keep it in a natural state so that we can manage the property for uh, sustainable use for both wildlife and uh, humans. So are there any uh, programs that you teach in school about wildlife conservation or have there been anything of such sort? 
So with culinary, it's a little tough. Um, so what I do uh, for my culinary classes is the advanced class I teach. I do uh, a wild game unit where I'll actually bring in uh, some wild game um, that's either been donated or out of my personal reserve. Um, I teach the children, uh, t children, I, they're teenagers. I teach the kids about conservation, um, about the history of hunting. Uh, and then I teach them how you have to treat wild game meat differently than traditional meat, um, be mainly because the, the fat content is so much lower. Uh, we then do a couple recipes that I know are typically crowd pleasers for non wild game eaters and uh, they make them. And I have never had anyone complain that they didn't like the taste of the food they make. <laughs> so uh, like are the students, uh, how the students are taking it? So uh, like, do you think that the future is in good hands? <laughs> you know what? I, this is something I've talked about on my podcast a lot. Um, as, <laughs> As everyone gets older, they always hate the younger population, right? Um, you know, like these teenagers, they don't know nothing. They, you know, they have it so easy. Um, I, I work with teenagers every day, and the, I think we're in good hands. They know more about sustainability and the impact that w the choices they make have on, you know, the landscape and, and the world around them way more than I ever did whenever I was their age. Um, I see kids, you know, using, um, reusable containers for their drinks. I see them not using plastic straws. I see them, you know, trying to reduce their overall consumption. And I, th I think that's a good thing. I think we need to continue to teach them the proper ways of sustainability as we learn more through research. Um, but I think we are in good hands. I think it's going to be a... At some point, it's going to be a little bit of a hard transition, especially for older generations. Um, but once once we get these kids into some decision-making capacities, they're going to start making decisions that are going to help climate change. It's going to help sustainable use. It's going to help you know, carbon emissions. And I, I really do believe we're going to be in very good hands here within the next 10 to 15 years. That's here. Like, so uh, speaking about climate change, uh, how has been the renewable energy culture uh, right now in the United States? In the United States, um, it's very hit or miss. Um, you go out to California, they're all about renewable energy. Um, that, that's sort of California's shtick. Uh, here in Pennsylvania, uh, where I live, this is coal country. People's wealth and people's livelihoods was built on mining, hauling, and utilizing coal. Uh, my grandfather was a uh, coal truck driver. He delivered coal to power plants. So here, it's tough. Um, we have a very strong natural gas and coal industry. I mean, when you start talking about shutting down coal power plants or stopping um, you know, gas drilling, you're talking about removing people from their jobs, right? Um, so it, it's that it's a tough balance um, to to try to go like full renewable energy. Um, you know, I see. I will say I've been seeing an increase in um, electric cars, especially the Tesla um, around here, which is a little ironic. Um, these, you know, I get it. You're you're purchasing an electric vehicle to reduce your emissions, right. but 
you when you get home, you have to plug your car in, and yeah. your your power comes from either it, here it's coming from a coal power plant. Right. So you're really not reducing your emissions nearly as much as what you think. Um, and there's also you know a little bit of a double-edged sword when it comes to renewable energy because just because it's reducing emissions doesn't mean it is 100% better for the planet. Um, a lot of the materials that we need to produce solar panels, mm-hmm. you know, is coming out of very large open pit mines. Okay, okay. <clears throat> and it's the same thing for, um, you know, lithium batteries and, and things of that nature. So, okay, we don't, we're not using those open pit mines here in Pennsylvania. So I don't see the impact on the landscape, but it's happening somewhere, right? So um, we need to, I think the future is in renewable energy. I think it is a positive thing, but we need to figure out how to make it more efficient and how to do it without such an impact on our planet somewhere, you know, whether that's Russia or China or Wyoming. Um, We need to figure out how to do it again, sustainably and and try to have them work hand in hand that way. So uh, since you mentioned about the open mining pits, I I remember a video I saw uh, there in Utah, they have this uh, like kind of giant pool type structures where they like uh, evaporate and take out salt and that is used in EV batteries, etc. And then recently another, I saw another video about the electricity grid that in the United States has to be uh, like the uh, the wires has to be laid out and the structures that will transport the electricity, high voltage uh, structures that needs to be put down into place because the currently the non-renewable part of the uh, electricity production that uh, is at the maximum uh, at, at its maximum capacity of the grid. So the grid has to be increased in the size for that. Yeah, um, everything that we've built in America that's made us, um, you know, and this sounds very American, but made us one of the greatest countries in the world, right? Um, and we were at one time. I don't know that we still are as the way that we're used to. Um, everything we built was built in the 50s and 60s, the 1950s and 60s. Um, so everything now is old. Uh, so like you mentioned, our electrical grid is uh, in a lot of the countries already at max capacity. Um, so, yeah, there's there's some we need to make some big infrastructure improvements in this country to make us run the way that we need to run. Um, and that hasn't happened um, on a large scale like it did whenever President Eisenhower was in office. Um, the Biden administration right now is trying to pass this very large infrastructure deal, bill. But it's also like three point five trillion dollars. That's a lot of money. Um, so you know, there, with any good you try to do, there's always some bad that comes with it too. Um, right. So it is tough. Um, and I love conservation. Um, I, I live for conservation, but at the same time, I understand that people need to live. Um, people need to have jobs. People need to be able to support themselves and their family. So it's not as easy as just saying, okay, you know, no more coal, no more gas, um, power or anything like that. Um, we have to keep them in mind. So I tend to lean towards, again, that sort of sustainable use. Um, we've been, we've been fighting against, um, some mineral mines, uh, a copper mine in Minnesota, real close to, um, the, what we call the boundary waters. Uh, it, you know, there are places that you can put mines or do mining and it is generally safe, 
but we don't need to put it right next to a protected area that eventually some of those chemicals they use to leach out the copper is, is going to get into that water. Um, mm. We need to be smart about where we're, we're putting um, this infrastructure and, and where we're extracting the natural resources and then also how we're doing it. Again, it, it's all about sustainability and figuring out where, where we can do it with the highest possible safety for the environment. Right. Absolutely. So coming back to the wildlife conservation. So uh, how do you uh, like, what do you suggest who wants to be a wildlife conservationist in United States or in general? So what are the steps? The steps are wide and varied. Um, you can get there any number of ways. My suggestion is, you know, if you're interested in conservation of a specific species or of a specific topic, um, just Google it and a bunch of conservation groups are going to come up for that. Um, join that group and get to know the people there, be involved. That's sort of the first step. If you want to make it your job, uh, the easiest way in is to go to college to be a wildlife, uh, wildlife biologist. And there's different ways you can take that degree for fisheries and uh, marine and, and things of that nature. Um, that's the easiest way to make it your job. But, you know, for anyone out there that is, um, you know, maybe working in, in the corporate world, uh, maybe in the HR department or accounting, there's a place for you in conservation, too, because these groups and these state agencies need accountants. They need HR managers. Um, it's not always just biologists you know, working. Um, they need the people to support them as well. So you can, you know, break into it, break into it that way. Um, so, yeah, there's a ton of different ways. The easiest way to break in sort of gently and feel your way in is to just join some conservation groups and start being involved and figuring out where you fit in the community. So to that question, I would just add uh, one thing uh, like, uh, so what, how to start uh, a new conservation group? Uh, for example, at any place in the world that where a, a such group does not exist. So if someone wants to start, so how can the person do that? Yeah. Um, so if you're going to start one of those groups, typically you're filing as a nonprofit in the United States. Um, if you're a nonprofit, theoretically, um, you don't make money, right? Like, yes, right. you pay your employees. Uh, you would, if you're an employee, you would get paid, but you're not making you know millions of dollars. Um, it costs money to file um, for nonprofit status. So I always joke that, you know, I'm, I'm paying money to not make money. Um, <laughs> Here in in the United States, you would have to file as a business. Then you file as a file as a business with your state. Um, once you get that, you file as a nonprofit within your state, and then file as a nonprofit with the United States government. Um, that approval process can take anywhere from six weeks to six months. Um, once you're approved, then it's just a matter of you know good accounting, making sure that you're you know, keeping track of the money that comes in, the money that goes out, you're showing that you're not making, you know, that you're not running a for-profit business with the federal government every single year. Um, the process is actually pretty easy to do, but like I said, it, it costs money, which <laughs> to, to file that paperwork in those forms. So um, sometimes it, it scares some people off that way. <laughs> Great. So, uh, so coming back to uh, yourself, so what are your general hobbies? <laughs> Apart from the ones we have talked. 
Yeah. So for me, uh, obviously, you know, hunting is a big hobby. Um, for me, it's, it's currently right now hunting season in Pennsylvania. Um, so I, I do that when I get up, when I get the time, uh, I hunt, um, when it's not hunting season, my family has, uh, 70 acres in a cabin. So we do a lot of habitat work there, planting trees, um, you know, selectively removing trees, planting shrubs, um, things that are going to benefit wildlife. And then, um, I also volunteer for a couple conservation organizations, uh, the national deer association, uh, pheasants forever, are the two that I probably volunteer with the most. Um, I actually just volunteered for a youth pheasant hunt uh, this past weekend for Pheasants Forever. Um, so, you know, it, those are sort of my my big things that, <laughs> that I tend to do hobby-wise. That's very nice. Like, so uh, coming to the plantation side, so uh, have you been collaborating with indigenous people? Like we have seen in Africa, in Saharan desert, the plantations are being happening with collaboration with them. And as well as in Amazon rainforest, the NGOs are collaborating with the indigenous tribes so that a, a kind of a diversity of trees can be planted and it's just the natural uh, biodiversity is created. Traditionally, no. Um, the Native Americans here um, have been treated very very poorly ever since Europeans came over, um, and especially once the United States government got set up. Um, having said that, there has been a greater importance put on um, collaboration with, you know, the native population here. Um, our, uh, the, our, the head of the Department of Interior that was just confirmed a month or two ago for the Biden administration is a member of the native community uh, so i expect that collaboration to uh, increase i expect their voice of their the voice of their concerns to be increased as well so um yeah traditionally no but um i i do see that changing and the native population having more again more of a voice that's good uh like if like it will be uh like a win-win situation for everyone if that happens yeah um without a doubt the native population has managed the resources better than european settlers did so i think there's a lot that we can learn from them right okay so that's all from my side i woke you up too early today and <laughs> <laughs> I could hear the the period bells of of the school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so thanks for your precious time. It was lovely interacting, and I got so, uh, perspectives that I didn't had before, and I learned a lot from you today. And I I'm certain that the audience will enjoy it too. Hey, I appreciate coming on. I love sp spreading the good gospel of uh, conservation. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Jason.